Well, I'm like a bad habit, I'm back. So, um, Welcome you to part two of, uh, I guess, for lack of better terms, the most important Bible teachings on earthly treasure. And uh, I'm glad I didn't scare too many of you off. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with us. Uh, this is important things, and I know uh, I've, I've struggled with the lesson for this week. So I just pray that you'd help me, and I, I pray that I won't be misunderstood. Uh, I just ask that you would uh, give me uh, the, uh, the, the, the power that I need to complete this, this uh, teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my uh, wireless mic isn't working very well, so I'm going to stand behind the pulpit, which is probably just as well. But I can see that if I get too far away, um, I guess that's not good. But I thought about maybe it was distracting last week because I would go on one side and then I'd go on the other. I have a tendency to, to walk and talk. So anyway, just to uh, kind of jump back into a little bit of the introduction. My motivation for preparing uh, and researching these lessons were, was originally to teach to the uh, teen Sunday school class. And what had happened is we, we had a uh, Financial Peace University seminar done by David Ramsey, who was a Christian man, at our church a couple years back. And he really did a good job teaching some sound management, financial management concepts, but he did not discuss what the Bible teaches about earthly treasure. His audience and his purposes were different. But I really feel that, unfortunately, his training only helps to address the symptoms because the real root cause is a spiritual heart problem and I hope that came out clearly from last week also I had received a gift from my oldest son he sent me a book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle and I noticed that you can buy those in lightly used form for less than ten dollars on Amazon so they're out there it's a short book but it has some very good information in it, some stuff that I'd never, never thought about before, even though I had studied this area extensively as a younger man. So my target audience, again, is born-again believers who should learn and apply these teachings to their lives. So why study what the Bible teaches about treasure? which is a topic that's often somewhat avoided in churches today because it's considered personal, maybe too sensitive. The reason why I wanted to do this is because I believe that what a believer thinks about and how, what they say and do in their lives with respect to treasure is a good indicator of their spiritual heart condition whether carnal, fleshly, worldly, whatever you want to label it, or spiritual and heavenly. So I think that this topic can be very spiritually convicting 
and can bring a little bit of discomfort to people in the, in the pews. Um, as I mentioned last week, John mentions in uh, chapter 16, verse 21, and he's talking about a woman giving birth where the pain and suffering of childbirth turns to joy once the birth is, uh, once the birth is, uh, has occurred. And hopefully the, the lessons, if they bring you a little bit of discomfort and hurt to your heart, it will turn to joy as I get through all these Bible teachings. So, and my goal is that each and every one of you as, as born-again believers would wholeheartedly, and I stress the word heart because that's where it starts, wholeheartedly embrace what the Bible teaches about treasure. Learning and pl- applying uh, the Bible's teaching on earthly treasure can really strengthen your relationship w- with God. But, as I said last week, and I may say again, know this, that the reverse is also true. So if you don't follow what the Bible teaches about treasure, you may find that your personal relationship with God is being weakened. And I'm not just presenting uh, this as a theoretical um, academic discussion. To the best of my ability, I've tried to follow the teachings from the Bible on treasure uh, throughout most of my adult life. You know, obviously, I don't follow them perfectly, but I, I can attest to you today that these, these teachings do work, and they produce material and spiritual prosperity. So the bottom line is that there's a fundamental and unseverable connection between faith and finances. So last week, if you were here, you got a handout. Uh, If you don't have a handout, you're going to have to get one. If anybody from last week brought theirs back, uh, there's not much change in them. I just corrected some grammar and some typos. But I don't have time to go back through the first three principles that were taught last week. I'm going to start right in on the fourth one. So I would recommend that you take a look at the handout. Number four, and what I've called this is the paradox that believers should understand and trust. The more treasure you give away, the more treasure you receive back. You know, God doesn't actually need or want our treasure. And for those of you who weren't here last week, when I use the term treasure, it collectively means your money, your tangible assets, your non-tangible assets, your wealth, your riches. There's so many terms used in the Bible. I'm just talking about that, and I'm going to use the term treasure. He doesn't need it, doesn't want it. It belongs to him anyway. That was the first teaching point from last week. But God actually wants to use his sons and daughters to give so that he can bless them. The New Testament never directly commands New Testament saints to give away their treasure. And giving is a very unique aspect of the Christian walk. It's a privilege. Instead of giving a direct command that is either obeyed or disobeyed, and if you disobey it, it's sin, um, God issues an unparalleled challenge to his people. 
it was first applied to the Jews in the Old Testament who were actually said to be robbing God. They were clearly sinning, but they had a command from God to tithe. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But now, uh, this challenge is for us, I believe, the New Testament saints. And this challenge explains the paradox that I just mentioned. Um, But... So much has been said and taught about Malachi 3.10 that I think is incorrect. We need to carefully and accurately understand what Malachi 3.10 is saying or how it should be interpreted and then how we should be applying it. So let's, if you want to, uh, I have so many scriptures and I, again, thought this was going to be shorter this week, but I'm once again going to be flying through the material So we don't have time necessarily to look up all the verses, but uh, Malachi 3.10 is the first verse I'm going to read. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I know some people have said, well, this only refers to spiritual blessing, not necessarily material or physical blessings of treasure. But if you look at verse 11, the verse right after that, it's clearly talking about physical or material blessings because verse 11 talks about he's going to rebuke the devourer for your sakes and not destroy the fruit of the ground and your grapes, your grapevines are going to do well. So he's talking in agricultural society, this was their wealth. This is how they generated their riches. So he's clearly talking about a material blessing here. And this verse is unique in the Bible. God actually challenges a man to prove or test or try him by giving away their treasure. And in return, God promises to materially bless. I looked at several of the verses in the Old Testament that use this word, uh, prove. And many of them relate to God uh, proving men, several of them, over 16. Most of the usages is in that context. We can think of uh, Job uh, 23.10, where uh, Job says that when I am tried, I will come forth as gold. And that's God was trying a man, in this case, Job. But there are very few verses that talk about men trying God. And in most cases, uh, they don't end well. If you try God or if you test God, He's going to squish you like a grape. Uh, Psalm 95.9 is, is one of the more prominent ones, and that's where it, it, it talks about Israel's failure uh, at Kadesh Barnea to go into the promised land because of unbelief. And they thought the inhabitants, they were like grasshoppers compared to the, the inhabitants. Um, 
And we know that we know what happened. They didn't go into the promised land, and God basically destroyed that whole generation. Only Joshua and Caleb were able to go into the promised land. But Malachi 3.10 is different. God actually asked you and me to prove him, to test him, to try him. And this is not only an Old Testament concept. Uh, If you take a look at 2 Corinthians uh, 9.6, that has the the principle of sowing and reaping. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Also Luke uh, 6.38, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount in uh, in Luke's account. It says, give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you. I'm not too loud, am I? I, I sounds like I just had my mic turned up. Okay. Everybody hear me okay, though? All right. So... Malachi 3.10 is often misinterpreted and misapplied. Uh, Unbelievers, and I met a Catholic man that thought this one time. He tithed in order to become rich. Um, Unbelievers and carnal fleshly believers sometimes rely upon this verse as saying, if you give away treasure, then uh, hopefully you'll get much more back from God. God's richer than you anyway, right? So he can, he can do that if that's what Malachi through 10 is actually saying. Or to receive some other benefit uh, by their act of giving. And the Pharisees in the New Testament are prime examples of this. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus mentions that the Pharisees were, were giving and they made a big show of it only to be seen by man. They were hypocrites. Their heart was not in the right place, but they, out of pride, ego, whatever, they were giving and making everybody know that they were giving a lot of money. Also, I think they probably had in mind this idea, this false idea that if they give money, then they will get back much more from God, you know, pour out a blessing, open the windows of heaven type stuff, because, and this could be a whole study in and of itself, think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, wealth and riches, prosperity, was equated with being spiritual and right with God. That's not the same way now, so... So I guess bottom line is Malachi 3.10 should not be interpreted as making God into a, uh, a cosmic slot machine or some sort of a lottery ticket. It's not a way to quick wealth. The first point I'd like to make in this regard is that the act of giving is actually the only antidote for things like the love of money, covetousness, which is what the Pharisees were, greed, materialism. So to accept God's challenge in Malachi 3.10, you actually have to give first. 
that's what the uh, that's what the verse says. So you give voluntarily, cheerfully, proportionately, generously, sacrificially, and we'll cover all those things later on when we cover grace giving. And you do this, you give away the treasure, and you prove God, you put God to the test, and that's the only way to accept the challenge of Malachi 3.10. The mere act of giving is a vivid reminder to believers that their life is all about God and not self. God's treasure actually has a greater purpose than merely the believer's prosperity, their comfort, their pleasure, their enjoyment, uh, their ability to gloat over all the treasure that they have amassed, whatever it be. Giving is the very essence of biblical Christianity. Consider the example of God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is the greatest giver of all time. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Um, there's another verse that's kind of interesting as well, 2 Corinthians 9.15. It, it basically just says that thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Unspeakable just means indescribable gift. Because the gift of Jesus Christ going to die and being buried and resurrecting to life to pay our sin debt, which was basically something that we couldn't address on our own, and that results in us being born again and having the indwelling spirit and and being given eternal life, that's a pretty great gift. And it was pretty costly, too. God gave his only son, uh, that son that was fully God and fully man, he was a one-of-a-kind. He was unique. But that was the only way that sin's debt could be paid. Um, God gave so that his disciples could give. Uh, Matthew 10, 8, the last part says, Freely you have received, freely give. By giving, the heart of a believer's, the heart of a believer is transformed from being essentially selfish, self-centered, which is what we were before we believed, to being selfless. Um, giving also shows that a believer recognized that Jesus is the Lord of their new life in Christ. Submitting areas of our life to God's lordship is how a believer becomes that living sacrifice that is called for in Romans 12.1. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You don't have to die. Jesus already did that for your sins. But you're supposed to be a living sacrifice for him. Giving also breaks the power of mammon over your life, and it surrenders more power and control to God. Remember Matthew 6.24 and Luke 16.13 that we talked about last week? You cannot love and serve both God and mammon. You have to choose. It's one or the other. And if you try to 
navigate that middle route, you will create great conflict and turmoil in your heart. I would also like to mention 1 Timothy 6.10. And this is a, I I think, a pretty well-known verse, although when you hear it, you will see that you probably didn't know everything about this verse and all its implications, um, which are pretty serious to you spiritually that you probably should know. And it goes like this. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And, and this is probably recognized for you. It's not, the, it's, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And that love is developed in your heart again. And notice it's the root of all evil, not just some evil. I don't know the full implications of that statement, but the love of money is apparently really bad. Um, To covet after means to strongly desire, to reach forth. It's almost like it can become all-consuming in your life. Uh, And it says here that this has caused some people to stray from the faith. And when it says pierce themselves through with many sorrows, I looked at the underlying Greek words that were used, and it talks about, I guess it would be better to say they have tortured their heart with consuming grief and pain. So that doesn't sound good. So once God's treasure, and again, it all belongs to God, is out of your wallet and financial account, the gravitational hold of treasure is broken. You're freed from mammon. The next point I'd like to make is God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. So this extends the paradox even a bit further. The more treasure you give away, the more treasure you receive back in order to voluntarily, proportionately, cheerfully, generously, sacrificially give away even more. Malachi 3.10 actually creates a cycle. It's not a vicious cycle. It's actually quite a glorious cycle. So let's take a look at Second. Corinthians 9, 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11. And chapters 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians says a lot about giving. And the context is that the Corinthian church had promised to collect and give an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem and Judea. And so Paul is writing to them just to remind them, you committed to this, so start collecting the offering up and um, I'll pick it up or send somebody to pick it up and bring it to Jerusalem uh, when I come. 
And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Verse 9, as it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Verse 10, which is more important, and 11. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread to your food, excuse me, for your food, and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being rich, enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. And that's a mouthful. And I actually, I read that, I've read those verses many times, and I didn't kind of understand what he was saying. But the bottom line is this. God will provide and increase your resources, your treasure, that will produce a, a, a great harvest of generosity in you through your giving, and you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. It speaks to that cycle. You give out, God gives back, you give out more. Physical and material blessings from God should be kind of viewed as a continuing test. So as stewards of God's treasure, the believer must consider how to reinvest, how to store up these new material blessings as true treasure. And we talked about all that last Sunday. Unfortunately, I, again, I don't have time to go back. Uh, apparently, it was recorded. So if you're interested, you can, you can download it and listen to it. But the, the most critical part of this test is to determine just how much you are going to keep as your salary, so to speak, for being God's wise, good, and faithful steward. And the last thing I'd like to mention about this, uh, this area, uh, the, the paradox, is, and I, I don't know how to, I know in real estate you always say location, 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 but I'm going to say warning, warning, warning. Because when God gives back treasure to you, because you are consistently applying these four biblical teachings on treasure, um, the believer has to be very, very careful to keep and guard their hearts. Remember Proverbs uh, 4.23 that I mentioned last week? Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow are the issues of life. Uh, keep is kind of a military term. It talks about guarding or watching over your heart. And the reason why you have to keep or guard your heart is because what we mentioned last week, everything that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, uh, covetousness, which is all around us, the love of money, which we talked about from uh, Timothy 6.10, 1 Timothy 6.10, uh, 
the deceitfulness of riches. And remember, we talked about the parables of the sower and the soils. And in two of them, it says specifically that the deceitfulness of riches are like thorns that come into your life and make you unfruitful. These can all cause the believer um, to forget the required perspective that God owns everything. It can cause them to lose control over their hearts by uh, forgetting where their real home is, by choosing the wrong place to invest and store up treasure, by not seeking true treasure that is both durable and indestructible. Again, what we talked about last week. By creating a spiritually debilitating turmoil, conflict in the heart. Remember, you can't serve both, you can't serve and love both God and mammon at the same time. It's one or the other. So on this, in this life, a believer must stay on a fairly straight and narrow path with respect to maintaining the Bible's four teachings on treasure. And I packaged it so that it's one perspective, one precept, one principle, and one paradox. Some concluding thoughts. Trust God, even though this is a paradox, which probably makes no sense in human thinking. A paradox is something that has at least two parts to it, and it's something that seems like both parts couldn't be true at the same time. They're, they're internally inconsistent. But a paradox, in, very, in some cases, when you start to look at it, take it apart, it can be very true. I think we've seen that with respect to Malachi 3.10. And you can never outgive God, obviously. He's got much more resource at his fingertips than you. But you can try, I guess. And... The paradox is all about, as the believer shovels out the treasure, God shovels it back, and then the believer is able to shovel more out. One final comment before I I complete our study of the four biblical teachings on earthly treasure. Um, Wholeheartedly, again, the emphasis on heart, embracing and applying and maintaining these four teachings on earthly treasure will remove major obstacles and hindrances to your spiritual growth. And when these obstacles and hindrances are removed, it will facilitate a lifelong process that we talked about last week, a practical sanctification or if you want to look at the flip side, separation from worldliness. And this will result in prosperity, both material and spiritual. In the book of 3 John, verse 2, it only has one chapter, so it's very short. I'm going to read you a verse that I don't know how many people even know about this. It says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. So you got wealth and health. 
uh, even as thy soul prospereth. This is a pretty obscure verse, and as far as I can tell, this is the only time that John mentions in the New Testament anything that has to do with earthly treasure. Um, but clearly, both material and spiritual blessings are possible for the believer and actually even desirable. He wishes that they would prosper in, in both ways. And then you may want to turn to Joshua chapter 1. And we're going to take a look at verses 7 and 8. Uh, it's right after the books of the law. It's the sixth verse, uh, book in the, in the Old Testament. Joshua 1, 7 to 8. And the context is this. Joshua has just taken over the leadership of the nation of Israel for Moses. And he is required, as the great general he was, to lead them into the promised land and take the promised land uh, for the nation. Well, given the past record of this stiff-necked and unbelieving people, I can imagine he was a bit concerned. God promises to be with Joshua, just as he was with Moses, and additionally, he gives Joshua a formula for uh, success and prosperity in this life. We often look at uh, just Joshua 1.8, but I think I'm going to read both of them, and you'll find out why in just a, a moment. So it says, only be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, then thou shalt have good success. The verses are similar, but there's a slight difference in them. I don't know if you picked that up. In verse 7, it says to be, it, God tells Joshua to be strong and very courageous in order to observe to do the law. Basically, God is telling him to apply the scriptures, and there weren't very many scriptures at that point in time, but apply the scriptures that you've learned to your life. Verse 8 says, to meditate therein on the scripture day and night. But the purpose is the same, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. In other words, apply the scripture that you have learned to your life. I'm reminded of James chapter 1, verse 22, that says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We have to be obedient to the scriptures that we have given to us, that we have in our our knowledge bank. Um, so, in both cases, the promise to Joshua is that if he do, does these two things, 
he will be prosperous and have success. So I think how this applies to what we just learned about what the Bible teaches about earthly treasure is that we have to be strong and very courageous to do battle in our heart over this matter of earthly treasure. There's something about men's hearts, women's hearts, that, you know, it's just a hard thing to control. So that you observe to do these four Bible teachings. And then you need to meditate in God's word all the time. And this, again, will allow you to observe to do these four Bible teachings. Um, I should have set my timer. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, wow. Is it really 1215? Oh, my. Okay. Well, we're going to run through this real quick because I, I need to raise a few points about what I'm calling grace giving. In the Old Testament, tithing under the law uh, is different than the New Testament uh, giving under grace, and I'm calling that grace giving, and I gave you the basis for that. Uh, it's Second Corinthians 8, 7 through 9. Um, in the Old Testament, the word that's translated tithe just means a tenth, 10%. And this was a command given to the Jews from the Lord. I can give you the sites if you want. One is Deuteronomy 12, 11. The tithe belonged to the Lord. It was essentially, uh, the, the tithe represented three different types of 10% taxes that were placed upon the families, Jewish families. And the, the taxes were to go to support the temple and the Levites, who were the full-time uh, ministers of Judaism. It was to support the uh, special holidays that were prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23. And then there was one tithe that was uh, collected only every third year, and that was to go and support the poor Jews. So... Again, in the Old Testament, the command was to tithe. There were several types of tithes. Uh, the Jewish people either obeyed it or disobeyed it. And obviously, by Malachi, they were disobeying it more than they were obeying it because God says they were robbing him. Uh, the New Testament is different. Okay. I'll skip. One thing I did note, and you may want to uh, follow up on this, uh, one thing that reinforces this idea that New Testament is different than the Old Testament is that uh, tithing is only mentioned a very few times in the New Testament. And it's, it's used with respect to denouncing the tithing practice of the Pharisees, and it's used in Hebrews to talk about the tithe that Abraham paid to Melchizedek. So... Very limited. So where does the term grace-giving come from? Well, it's from 2 Corinthians 8, 7, and 9. And I'll just read this one verse. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, 
see that ye abound in this grace also. Well, if you read the verses above it, verses 1 through 6, again, it's talking about this collection of money that the church at Corinth was supposed to be uh, undertaking, and it, it's all about giving money and offering. But Paul here calls it a grace, just like faith, utterance, knowledge is a grace. Um, Grace giving is a proper response to the grace of God that he has freely bestowed upon every New Testament believer. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Uh, Also, this is somewhat interesting, I think. Uh, Grace giving is a cheerful, joyful giving. Uh, The word that's translated most often grace in the New Testament is charis. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. But charis, grace, actually comes from another Greek word, chairo, that means rejoice and be glad. So grace giving, again, is supposed to be cheerful. Um, We're supposed to give to God first. It's first fruits. And this is how, well, if we keep our godly priorities straight, this won't be a a problem. First fruits is an interesting word, and I don't have time to go into it, but it is, uh, basically it was required of the Jewish people to give the very first of their barley harvest, which was in the spring, to God. And it recognized that God would give the increase if there was going to be increase. And also, um, it showed their absolute trust in God and the fall harvest that it would be, it would be good. So we need to have our priorities uh, correct. We need to give to God first our first fruits. Giving to God must be done with a proper attitude, motive. Um, Again, grace giving is not like the Old Testament command by God for the Jewish people to pay their taxes. Uh, It's a personal challenge. It comes out of Malachi 3.10. To prove him, to try him, to test him. Um, It should be done out of an with an attitude of gratitude for God's love for us and what he's done for us, his mercy and grace. Um, Take a quick look at 2 Corinthians 9-7. I'll read that. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. What we purpose in our heart with respect to giving of our treasure, I mean, that's, that speaks directly to our attitudes and motives. Not grudgingly, it shouldn't be reluctantly, it should be voluntarily given, willingly given, uh, or of necessity. I mean, it's not like we're under the Old Testament where it was a command by God to tithe. And it's supposed to be done cheerfully with a merry or a joyous heart. 
Grace giving is proportionate giving. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 16, 2, last part. Uh, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings or collections when I come. Uh, back then, they probably got paid every, every week. Uh, sometimes it would probably be in the form of goods. But somehow they, they needed to figure out how to determine how much of the way that God had prospered them that week uh, to give to God. And this is consistent with the Malachi 3.10 cycle that, that has been set up that I spoke to. Give away, get back, give away. It's all proportionate as God has, has prospered you or blessed you. Grace giving is generous giving. Um, you can, well, I just mentioned 2 Corinthians uh, 9, 6, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which, is, which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Also, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11 is, is a very important verse um, on this. And I wish I had time to, to go into it. Grace giving is sacrificial giving. Um, King David in the Old Testament, when he was uh, wanting to stop the plague on the people, uh, on the, the Israelites that he had actually caused by numbering the, the folks that were able to, to uh, take up arms, uh, he caused God to send the death angel for three days onto the nation of Israel. But he, he decided that if he could just offer a, a burnt sacrifice uh, to God, maybe God would relent and stop the killing. And, and he did, actually. But the place where David wanted to set up the altar was uh, on somebody else's land, not even a Jewish man, a, a Jebusite, the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so... Uh, the, the guy's name, Avana, Arvana, actually said, David, if you want to do this, this is a good thing. Just take the land. But David said, um, neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. It's got to cost you a little bit when you give an offering. Um, So, we're not talking about uh, giving money or pledging to give money that you don't have, that you're just kind of expecting to receive from God, Uh, but it can still be sacrificial giving. Think of the widow and her two mites. Uh, For her, I mean, she was giving the small amount that she had uh, that could have been used for food, but she was giving it as offering to God. It's not the amount, but every single thing you give away to God uh, could have been kept by you and used for other things that you wanted. Um, okay, I don't have time to talk about the fringe benefits or the perks of grace, grace giving. Perks are just collateral benefits that you give get over and above your salary, uh, but it helps your prayer life. It helps your relationship with God. Uh, it is an act of worship that God honors. Um, 
And it liberates the believer from worldly distractions that can cause them to be unfruitful, as we learn from the parable of the sower and the soils, or even worse, you know, think about 1 Timothy 6.10. It can cause you to stray from the faith, and it can cause you to, um, you know, terrible pain and suffering in your heart. I was going to mention this, and, and this is something that Dave Ramsey emphasized, too. You don't want to use and abuse debt in order to accumulate possessions. Um, debt is a form of bondage or slavery, and that's clearly taught in the Old Testament. So beware. Okay. Final wrap-up um, on the four most important Bible teachings on, on earthly treasure and our brief study on grace giving. Um, knowing and applying these four Bible teachings on earthly treasure and then practicing grace giving can strengthen the believer's personal relationship with God. But again, know this, that the reverse is also true. So I can help you kind of learn what the Bible teaches about earthly treasure and, and grace giving. And hopefully uh, you, you'll take this information and store it in the database in your mind, which, as I mentioned last week, is the original personal computer. That's where you store information that you take in. And then it becomes knowledge. But only you can apply this knowledge to your life. Just a reminder of James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So what are you going to do with this new knowledge that is now stored in your heart? And the way I use the term heart, it's made up of your mind, your will, 